Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning in John's Gospel, we've uh, so far seen two miracles that Jesus has performed, and now we're going to plunge into the heart of the meaning of it all as Jesus begins his Bread of Life discourse. We're looking at verses 22 through 40, and because that's a big chunk of Scripture and it's important to follow the back and forth, we're not going to take it all at once. We're going to read it as we discuss it so that we'll see the story developing as we go. So we're going to begin with uh, the first few verses, 22 through 29. So hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We'll pause there for a moment. It's not unusual when you're reading about people interacting with Jesus, followers of Jesus, disciples even, to become a little frustrated with the way the conversation progresses. Uh, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I imagine myself there, and in my pride I identify more with Jesus than the stumbling disciples, and so I imagine myself in the scene almost helping Jesus, as it were, by translating his words for him and explaining to people what it is that Jesus really means. Of course, at a certain point, it's difficult to do that because you become so frustrated with people's misunderstandings that that you just throw your hands up and you say, stop, just stop, stop asking your stupid questions. Stop talking when Jesus is trying to explain himself. Just stop, just wait a minute. Let me stop you right there and explain all of these things to you. And as I read this passage, this is how I feel. I want to stop them. I want to stop them from asking the things they're going to ask and saying the things they're going to say because some of these things, although they're going to sound good, based on the way Jesus responds, you realize actually they're not so good. They're not good. It would have been better to just stop and listen and let the truth of what Jesus was saying sink in. So as we go through here, I want us to stop. I want us to stop reading the text and immediately filing it away in in, in the archive of stuff we already get, already understand. I want us to stop and wait and listen to what Jesus is really saying. I want us to do what the people who first heard these words did not do and could not do. 
I want us to stop and listen. There are a lot of things they needed to stop doing. One thing they needed to stop doing is they needed to stop looking for Jesus. They're seeking Jesus, but they needed to stop seeking him on the road to personal fulfillment and happiness. Remember, we saw that the the impetus for this crowd following Jesus is he had fed them. He had given them something miraculous where there could have been hunger. Instead, they were full. And because of that wonder, they wanted to make him a king. So Jesus escapes from them. He distances himself. We saw the second miracle after the the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. This is how motivated he is to get away. The disciples are on a boat, but Jesus, he just walks on water to get to the other side of the sea. And the people now have a miracle to behold and a mystery to contemplate. Because as John describes it, they're, they're putting the pieces together. They say, wait a second. No, there was one boat here. We saw the disciples leave in that boat, and Jesus was not in that boat, and yet he's not here. Where did he go? So they're puzzling over what has taken place. And, and with that in mind, with the, the glory of the miracle that he's performed, and also the mystery of the second miracle that they don't actually know uh, what's happened, this is the state at which the people catch up to Jesus. They're seeking him. Now, oftentimes, we encourage people to be seekers, to, to look for Jesus, and that's what they're doing. But when they find Jesus, he doesn't welcome them and say, hey, seekers, I'm so glad. I know it was a little off-putting when I left you after the time you wanted to make me king, but I'm glad you persevered. You were tested, and you kept going, and now I'm ready to receive you. That's not what happens. Jesus says they're still doing what they're doing for the wrong reason. They may be seeking Jesus, but they're traveling the wrong road if they hope to find him. And he tells us what it is that they're doing and what it amounts to is, although they've they've seen the signs, they haven't seen Jesus in the signs. They haven't seen him for who he is. They haven't recognized that the miracle that they witnessed points to the fact that Jesus is the promised one, that he is the Messiah. Instead, they've taken that sign as the end itself. Like, that was the good gift. That's the reason they want to follow him, not because of what the sign actually signifies. What they hope is that Jesus will give them the things that they want. Obviously, that they won't starve if they're following Jesus. He will give them that. But also, they're looking for something more. They don't want to just be fed. They also want to be liberated. If they want a new political order, which they are no longer oppressed as they are now. Jesus can give them this. And he can give them all the things that go along with that. He can give them happiness, fulfillment, success even. If Jesus rules, they expect their lives will get better, that everything will start working for them. And so they follow him. They want good things from Jesus. The problem is they don't want the right things from Jesus. What they want is not bad. What they want is not what Jesus came to give. They're seeking him, but not for the things he actually came to do. And I would suggest to you that their problem is our problem. Jesus says to these people in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And yet, that's what we do. We work for the food that perishes. If you think about your work, you think about the times that you have worked your hardest, 
that you have done the most, that you've really pushed yourself to the point of exhaustion, where you've worked so hard you didn't think that you could keep this pace up? The reason for that, that what, what motivated you in that moment, is probably the same as what motivates me in those moments. You leave it all on the table, you give yourself up because you expect some gain from it. Uh, you work for a paycheck, you work for achievement, for promotion, for money, you work for better things, a better car, or at least to pay off the one that you have. You work so that your wife can have the kitchen of her dreams. <laughs> Preaching to myself a little bit. That's what we work for. That's what we work for. But you know what? In eternity, your car won't exist. Your paychecks won't exist. No matter how much money you have in the bank, you won't be able to make uh, deductions from that, withdrawals from it in eternity. It won't matter. People won't take U.S. currency in heaven. It's not going to matter. No one in, in the life to come is going to say, you know what? Man, I, I read all your books and they were really good. I'm not surprised to find you here in heaven. It's not going to happen. Nothing you've done here for yourself. None of that work is going to amount to anything because you're working for food that perishes. Now, I'm not saying you don't need it. You do need it. It is necessary, and it is part of our calling as human beings to work. But that work goes into something very temporal, something that disappears. Right? The food that perishes, it sustains you for a moment, and then it goes away. And Jesus is saying, don't live your life for that. Don't put all your effort into that. Don't do it all for that. Instead, work for the food that doesn't perish. The food that endures to eternal life. That's what we should be working for. Now, most of us, even when it comes to Jesus, continue to work for the things that perish. Only as Christians, we baptize that work so that we can feel better about it. So we tell ourselves something like this. Well, we know Jesus is all about grace and not works. And, and that's advantageous to Christians because what that must mean is that although other people need to work to get ahead in life, we will advance by grace. Other people might need to really sacrifice in order to get promotions and recognition and fame. But God will give us those things by grace. Because he loves us. And we won't need to work so hard for those things. They'll be ours almost easily because we deserve them because we're his people so we do the same thing that everybody else does we long for the same things that everyone else does we long for the same fulfillment the same personal happiness the fame the pride all of it is the same only when we get it we thank jesus for it and say that it came from him but Jesus isn't saying that when you get the food that perishes, be sure to thank me for it. He's saying don't work for that. Work for something else instead. Do something else instead. And when you hear that, and you really hear it, you really get it, that Jesus is actually calling for a complete reorientation of how we are and what we value, most of us respond exactly the way that they respond. When Jesus says to them, don't work for the food that perishes, work for the food that endures to eternal life, they're like, great, Jesus, what sort of work did you have in mind? What do we need to do to be doing the work of God? 
What do we need to do to be doing the work of God? As Christians, what we try to do is to secure our happiness by doing the work of God as opposed to some sort of selfish work of man. The people expect that Jesus is going to give them some kind of a a formula. He's going to explain to them what parts of the old covenant economy they really need to focus on. Maybe the, the five things they need to be doing in order to be doing the work of God and therefore to get the enduring bread, that's what they're looking for, like a a religious plan, some sort of spiritual way that will give them the things that they want. But what they want doesn't change. It's just a change in the means. And when Jesus answers them, he answers with grace. He says the work that you have to do is believe. There's something paradoxical in that. Jesus isn't saying you need to believe and that's really going to be hard work. And that's the, the, the nature of the work. Jesus is, is kind of saying to them, the work is, is not work. The work is belief. It's belief. You need to believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. So faith, not works. But don't miss the point here. Don't miss the point. This isn't as easy as it seems because we've got to read what we're being told in light of that earlier paradoxical do not work for the things that perish. Right? Jesus isn't saying don't worry about it. Instead of doing like secular work, you need to do sacred work so that you can be blessed. He's saying something different. Because the way we usually read it is, this is going to sound absurd, but the way we usually interpret the gospel is this. It's as if Jesus is saying, believe in me and you will receive the benefits you crave, the very things I just called food that perishes. In other words, what we want doesn't change. We're just seeking it via a different means. We're not going to work for it. We're going to believe for it. But what we're believing for is the same thing. But surely, Jesus isn't holding out faith as a way of getting the food that perishes. Saying that if you're faithful, then you'll get all of the things that I've just told you you shouldn't put your hope in. That would be crazy. That would be crazy. Jesus isn't saying, if you believe, you'll get the stuff. Jesus is saying, stop wanting the stuff. Believe and go in a different direction entirely. Believing in the one who was sent, the true Jesus, means awakening to a different hunger. Not the satisfaction of our physical hungers, our psychological hungers, but of a spiritual need, a spiritual longing underneath it all. All of the the rest, all of the, the, the needs on the surface are just shadows of that deeper need. Believing Jesus means changing what you seek. This is why you've got to stop looking for him on the road to personal fulfillment. That's the problem we have. Most of us are looking to find Jesus, but we're looking to to run into him on the road we're already traveling. And Jesus is saying, I want you to travel a different road. Another way to think about this, Jesus is not a better means to the same end. He's a better end. The shift here is greater than we give it credit for. Stop seeking Jesus on the road to happiness. And also, the people could have used this advice as well. Stop asking for hints when you're standing in front of the answer. 
Stop asking for hints when you're standing in front of the answer. As they continue, you'll see what I mean. So we're picking up now in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The most shocking thing about this turn in the conversation is that the people who are asking Jesus to give them a sign are the same people he miraculously fed on the other side of the water. It shows human memory is uh, pretty short. Right? Show us a miracle, Jesus. Well, did, I, I just did that. Oh, yeah, we met today. Like, give us another one. But it's actually not as crazy as it sounds. Uh, I think the irony isn't as great because you have to realize implied in the conversation is Jesus is insisting he's better than they thought he was. And when they miraculously fed, were miraculously fed by him, they assumed he was a second Moses. But they hearkened back to Deuteronomy 18's prophecy that one day another prophet like me would come and he will teach you. Right? So they were willing on the basis of that sign to accept that Jesus was like um, another Moses come along, sort of in the tradition of Moses. But now Jesus is saying he's something more than that. He's, he's taking more glory to himself. It's like he's saying he's better than Moses. And if he's going to say things like that, then this is a great opportunity to say, well, Jesus, you need to put up or shut up. Because Moses, I don't know if you know this, but if you go back and you read in the book of Exodus, Moses did great things. And, and I know you have, but he did greater things than what you just did. Like you fed us, true, one meal. But I mean, we saw you got the bread from a little kid. It was already there. Moses fed the people in the wilderness for 40 years. And the bread that he gave them, he didn't take it off of some kid. It came straight from heaven. Like this was bread straight from heaven. Could you give us anything like that maybe? Any sort of a sign like that? So what they're asking for is a bigger sign, something much larger than what had happened before. If Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand signs. What they want. They've grown up in the old covenant religion, which is full of signs that signify, that point to some higher reality and a future covenant reality as well. So it's not surprising that people who've grown up in that economy will expect that when the truth comes, it will be accompanied by signs. Jews seek signs, just as Greeks look for wisdom. But the reality of Christ crucified It's a stumbling block to the Jews, just as it's folly to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. So here's here's the irony. Like, if you want signs, if you want wisdom, well, here's Christ. He's the fulfillment of the signs. He is the wisdom of God. And yet, when he is revealed, the people seeking the signs stumble over them. They can't recognize Jesus in them. And the people looking for wisdom, when they hear the wisdom, it sounds like foolishness. They don't have ears to hear. And their response is a lot like our response. 
If their problem is our problem, their response is our response as well. God says lots of nice things. It's lovely. We read all sorts of wonderful things in the Bible, and that's great. And what I'd like is some tangible stuff that I can actually hold on to. In addition to uh, seeking a formula of religious acts that will result in blessing, we want signs, we want proofs. We, we need those tangible benefits to know that this stuff is true. Jesus comes to us and he promises eternal life, and we're like, okay, that's great, but, you know, I also have bills to pay. I also have certain ambitions. I'm going to need a little something for now. In other words, Jesus, could you spot me a little bit? Glory, that's great. I look forward to that. But, you know, where my real needs are, are in the here and now. And so we come to him thinking that the real needs, the the ones that matter, are the ones that pass away. So we want signs. We want proof. Now, if you're of a more mystical bent, then you want some sort of miraculous sign. Yeah, the kind of thing other people would call a coincidence You want coincidences that will assure you that God is blessing you, that he's on your side. There's a tendency there maybe towards uh, superstition, like reading everything as if it was God giving you a sign. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'm going to do these things for you. Most of us are more practical. We're like, you know what? I don't need miraculous signs. I need like like signs I can take to the bank. Like tangible signs that I can see and that people can see that I can hold on to that can assure me of God's love and God's blessings. An indulgence not of our superstitious side so much maybe as our selfish side. I'll know God will take care of me in eternity if he really takes care of me right now. The irony is, though, these people are standing at the face of Jesus They're speaking to him face to face and they're saying, give us a sign when the reality is he is the reality that all the signs pointed to. When manna, bread from heaven, came down and it fed the people in the wilderness, that was a shadow. As good as that was, as tangible as it was, the best that it did was point forward to the bread of God come down from heaven, Jesus Christ. So they're standing in front of the fulfillment and asking if they can have more of the shadow. They're standing in front of the answer and they're asking for another hint. There's something baffling and frustrating about that. They're staring him in the eye, face to face, but they don't see him. And instead, they just want another sign. But Jesus is the true bread from heaven given by the Father. He's the bread of God. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's who he is. Now, he's true in a number of senses. When he says that there's a true bread, it's true in a couple of ways. Obviously, manna was true in the sense that it existed. It was physical and it nourished you. It wasn't unreal. But this bread is true in the sense that it is the reality that all the other signs pointed to. Right? So all of those signs were uh, indicating the coming of Christ. And now here is Christ. So he is the true bread, the one who is pointed to. But there's another sense in which he's true. It's that he actually gives eternal life. He doesn't just signify it. He doesn't just make a show of it or a picture of it. Right? 
Christ is the bread from heaven that when you feed on him, you live forever. That wasn't what manna was. That wasn't what the bread that he fed the 5,000 with was. He gave them signs that pointed to the bread that gives eternal life, but he was the bread that gives eternal life. They say, give us this bread. When he tells them about this bread, their response is, give us this bread. They even preface it by saying, sir, which is very respectful. Sir, give us this bread. And that sounds like an altar call moment. Like, wow, they get it now. They understand. They realize they've been looking for the wrong things, but no, they still don't get it because they still think he's talking about some other kind of tangible, physical bread that he's going to give them. They don't realize he's talking about himself. So he answers, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now, usually when we read this phrase, this is the first of seven of these I am statements that Jesus will make in the Gospel of John. And you read it, and you read it in a sort of reverent tone, because it's such a famous line that clearly this is the point of the whole discourse, to get to that moment where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But when I picture this scene, uh, I picture it a little bit differently. This is just me, but I, I feel like it's more like uh, they say to him, give us this bread, and Jesus, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Like expressing the frustration a little bit. Right? You're not getting it. Give us the bread. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. We've got to stop looking for signs, asking for hence, when the answer is standing before us. When Jesus is staring us in the face, why would we seek comfort and anything less? The last thing that people need, that we need as well, is to stop looking for perks and start trusting in God's covenant promise. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus, after insisting that he is the bread, reflects on their unbelief, reflects on the fact that although they are seeking him, they do not see him, they do not receive him. These people, although they're speaking to Jesus, are seeking their security in something else. When they ask for the bread, they're asking for another kind of uh, tangible thing, another kind of food that will ultimately perish. When they say, give us this bread, it's not a moment of realization for them because they've already been given the bread. They've already had Jesus presented to them, and yet they have not received him. They have not believed him, seen him for who he is. You have seen me, he says, and yet... Do not believe. They've seen Christ offered in the signs, 
but they've not discerned him in the signs and thus have not believed. Our security, our sense of of being in Christ, of being loved by him, is often wrapped up in exactly these kinds of tangible, perishable things. Like we believe if we receive the benefits. We trust if we are blessed. The problem with that kind of security is it lasts only so long as you don't need it. But the moment you're tested, the moment you're tried, that kind of security goes away. If your trust depends on getting the stuff, when the stuff is taken from you or denied to you, what do you have to trust in? Nothing. When we don't prosper, when things don't go as we think they should, we lose those tangible signs we were counting on and can no longer trust in the God we expected to give us everything we desired. But maybe, instead of trusting in the perks, in the benefits, in the blessings, Christ has called us to trust instead in his promise. His promise. The purpose of the signs is to point to the promise. And it's the promise where our security is found. You're secure if you trust that God will keep his promise to save. When we talk about the sacraments of the church, we talk about them as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. When we talk about them that way, we we emphasize that these things are real, that what is offered in them is real, that it is really received by those who receive in faith. But... It isn't the instrumentality of the sacrament that is emphasized. It is the content. It is what it signifies. What does it signify? Christ. Christ crucified. The blood of Christ shed for us. The promise of salvation. The promise that Jesus reiterates twice here, that he will raise us up on the last day, that future resurrection. Those are the realities that are conveyed to us through the signs. That's where our trust should be. If you do the work so you can get the perks, then your hope is going to falter. Because in this world, sometimes evildoers prosper. Sometimes the people who do bad things get ahead in life. Sometimes not only do the righteous not advance, but they are held back because of their righteousness. They are punished because they do good. If you think, that by living God's formula, you will enjoy happiness in this life, your hope will inevitably fail. Because in this fallen world and life under the sun, there is no guarantee that things are going to work out the way that they should. So instead, believe in the Father's promise of salvation. Believe in the Son who accomplished the work of salvation on the cross. Believe in the Spirit who applies that work to our lives, to our history. Have faith in them. Have faith in the triune God who made all things, who redeems us, the God who will make all things new. Have faith that He will do what He says He will do. When you look for assurance, don't look to the circumstances of your life, look to the past of the covenant history. Look to see the promises God made and fulfilled and the way that he fulfilled them. 
Look to see how all those shadows in the Old Testament become glorious reality in the New and be strengthened by that. When you look for security, look to the future of those promises as well. Look to the promise that Jesus gives that no one who comes to him will be cast out, that he will lose no one that the Father has placed in his hand, that he will raise you up on the last day. Trust in that. Trust that he will do what he says he will do. We pray every Sunday, thy will be done. Thy will be done. But what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Sometimes we act as if the will of God is, is an unknowable mystery. But Jesus gives it to us. Jesus tells us what the will of the Father is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That is God's will. That is the work that he is doing, that he will accomplish. The Son has come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. In other words, the Son will make it so. What the Father wills, the Son will do and the Spirit will apply in our lives. We ask ourselves, is this for me? How do I know? How do I know it's really mine? How do I know I'm really called? But if you believe, if you come to him, then you can trust that the promise is yours. Whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. This is the gospel of Christ crucified. And yes, it is a stumbling block to those who seek signs. And yes, it is foolishness to those who seek the world's wisdom. But not to everyone, Paul says. It is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For those who believe Jesus Christ is the manna. He is the true bread from heaven. He's the bread that keeps us alive in the wilderness. He is the bread who will keep us alive for eternity. He's the lion who conquered death, the lamb who atoned for sin. He's the first fruit from the dead who will raise us up on the last day. Jesus is all of those things and more. As we stand face to face before him, let us not ask for hints. Let us not be blind to the reality that stands before us. Jesus keeps his promises. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.